everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling, and with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. You. With us also today is Janelle Bluedorn, our special guest. She is a PA. Uh, she has over a decade of experience in emergency medicine and then made the jump to academia. And she is now currently an assistant professor in the PA program at Duke University. And we're going to talk a little bit today about what that's like transitioning to really full-time academics. Because some of us, like I, I do part-time academics, part-time clinical um, but what is it like transitioning out of clinical practice altogether? I am so happy to be here. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Brian. Well, we're happy to have you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I was just curious and thought we could chatter about this kind of process because most, I guess, particularly for APPs, PAs, NPs, we all finish school and then you, by and large, everyone I think starts out t- uh, practicing clinically, probably full time. There's probably niche cases. But in some cases, certainly not all, some people will get into teaching some of the time. Many people will practice full-time clinically and then have some kind of education that goes on on top of that. So teaching on service or on their own time. We make a podcast, for instance. Um, But then some people will start to carve out part of their schedule uh, as paid time that's devoted to teaching. And then for some people, they end up doing uh, primarily or exclusively that. So I think we all sit at different points on that spectrum. Um, Brian, you're split, right? I am 100% clinical, uh, and uh, you know, just occasional whatever, uh, guest lectures and things like that. And then Janelle, uh, help us out. Where are you at in this, this process? You started out clinically too as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I worked for a long time clinically, so 100% um, working in emergency medicine. And I started teaching here or there. It sounds like a little bit like what some of y'all do here. So picking up lectures, guest lectures, precepted a lot of students. And I kind of got like bit by that, that education bug. Um, my family had an impending move geographically, and I figured that that was a nice time to have a transition with my career too. And I actually applied for faculty positions in PA programs uh, to the place that we were going to be moving to geographically, and I got one of them. And and with that first role, um, and that was at the University of North Carolina, I actually continued working clinically for a good amount of my um, kind of my split. And so I was working 0.3 FTE. Uh, That FTE is... uh, basically got your uh, full-time effort. And so 30% of my my role was working clinically and 70% of my role at that institution was teaching um, or working academically. I have since now moved to another institution. I'm at Duke now and I am 100% um, academic. I'm actually not working clinically. And that's been for the last two years of my career. I've been at that 100% um, capacity in, in academics. So your clinical work and your teaching when you were split, were they at the same institution? Yes, they were at the same institution. And so I was working in the emergency department at UNC. So we covered two hospitals and a few urgent cares. And I worked those shifts. And then I also did 
um, continued to, I mean, obviously uh, taught as well. Now maybe we can talk about how kind of structuring those splits works. But so when you were doing it part time and now full time, what does your academic work look like? Yeah. So full time now. Um, I do a lot of curricular design, a lot of delivery of coursework. Um, I also do quite a bit of service. Uh, service in academics is basically um, committee work for your program, for your institution, for your profession. I do a lot of work with like PAEA, the Physician Assistant Education Association. So a good amount of my, my time is spent doing that type of service. And then scholarship, uh, scholarly work. And so that means getting involved with research, publication, um, presenting at uh, conferences as well. And so um, kind of by you know, in that that split of what I do with 100% of my time, I kind of hit on a lot of kind of the foundational and kind of functional competencies uh, that exist for PA educators. Um, and so teaching, um, scholarship, leadership, service, those types of things. And it's interesting because I imagine a lot of people, when they think about teaching in something like a PA program, it, they imagine teaching in a classroom, making lectures, maybe building tests and grading them, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it sounds like there are a lot of other things you could busy yourself with. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that really surprised me when I first like made this switch from mostly clinical work um, to faculty work was the that ratio of like meetings and preparation to the actual teaching was different than I anticipated it to be. I thought it was going to be like what you just said, a lot of lectures, um, you know, a lot of like maybe student meetings, that type of thing. Uh, but then I realized I'm spending a lot of time doing preparation, doing kind of like follow up. How how well was that exam put together that I just wrote? Um, a lot more meeting with students. And I was like, wow, this is very different. But then I actually then kind of saw a parallel between that uh, and sort of that ratio and the way that we spend our time when we're working clinically, too. Because like I think that when you go into clinical medicine, you think you're going to spend all this time with like patients. You're like, I'm going to be in like patient rooms all the time. <laughs> how much of our time are we actually spent with patients right, as opposed to the hospital and everyone's at a computer and you're like, yeah, oh, we're, we're charting. <laughs> yeah, we're charting. We're calling co consults, those type of things. And I'm like, well, you know, it's different than I thought it was going to be, but I guess it's not that different than what my experience was before. Do you think that's what most people could expect though? Or does it really depend on your particular role, what you gravitate to and you know, what the institution is looking for? Absolutely. I think that, Absolutely, that it, it is going to be different based on what your role is. And so, uh, for example, my current role at the Duke PA program is on the preclinical year team. And so that means that I help prepare students for their clinical year. That means that I do a lot more classroom teaching, small group structuring, uh, facilitation and teaching than, say, some of my colleagues who may be primarily on the clinical year side of things. They're probably spending more time kind of doing those meetings, meeting with preceptors, um, planning um, planning sites for different clinical rotations, as opposed to that actual in-classroom time. It's all teaching at the end of the day. Like, it's just teaching in, in different forms. Yeah. I wonder also if at some programs, maybe smaller ones or less academically focused ones, there's less going on other than the kind of strict quote-unquote teaching. For instance, there may not be a great deal of scholarship, so that's not mm -hmm. necessarily something that they expect the faculty to be doing. 
Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, my first faculty appointment was at a program that was much smaller than my current one. So we had 20 students per cohort when I was at UNC, and we have 90 students per cohort uh, now at Duke. And I think that one of the differences is that when you have a smaller program, you also have a smaller faculty. And so although you may have less emphasis on things like scholarship and those types of things, um, you find yourself wearing more hats when you're working at a smaller program. And so instead of just strictly being mostly on like the preclinical side of things, you probably are dabbling a little bit more on, on both sides of things. Um, so you, you do find a lot of stuff to busy your time for sure. Right. Or like my PA program was maybe 40 students, mm -hmm. uh, small faculty and you know, they. I think they probably had their hands full, just uh, kind of getting the curriculum delivered and mm -hmm. getting the necessary things done. Brian, how would you say your role differs from all of that? I mean, you are part time. You are, correct me if I'm wrong, mostly remote. If that makes a difference. Yeah. So I have, a, I guess, a little bit of a unique um, setup in that I'm a hundred percent clinical at Kentucky, but the way our work schedule is structured. You know, because I work in the ICU, I work shifts uh, as opposed to like a clinic job where I'm there Monday through Friday. Uh, I have some freedom with my schedule. And so I'm able to teach um, part time at Georgetown in DC uh, along with that. So I'm really like a 1.5, I guess, FTE uh, <laughs> right now. But um, I do most of my teaching with Georgetown is remote. So I do, I go to, to DC three weeks out of the year to teach some in-person stuff, mostly sim lab procedures, stuff like that. Uh, but then right, mostly- Just to I remind do, everyone, Brian is in Kentucky. Yeah, So yeah. Georgetown is in Washington, yeah, D.C. Georgetown so is Washington, D.C. They're not even remotely close to each right, other. Right, yeah, it's yeah. a flight uh, every time. So, But uh, yeah, so I teach weekly. Uh, every week I teach one or two classes. I'm only teaching one class this semester. Uh, normally I teach two. And uh, so that's two hours per class per week. Um online and then grading and stuff like that. Now I do, um, I do a fair amount of administrative stuff as well, um, which is unusual for someone who's an adjunct sort of part-time faculty. Um, but that's just cause I'm interested in academics and trying to move towards that. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm involved with planning some what, uh, and stuff like that. But so that's in one of the questions, I guess that would probably interest a lot of people because you are able to combine your clinical and your academic work essentially by virtue of just working more, which yeah. is always possible if you can schedule it flexibly enough. Whereas Janelle, you were working for the same people. So did, did they split up your time? So it basically added up to one FTE, which usually means 40 hours for most people? In theory, yes. Right. Um, in practice, no. Uh, so I would be scheduled basically 30% of my time, theoretically, in a clinical role. And it, it was basically all within that same institution. I know that there are some people who their full-time position with a PA program or an NP program would be like four days a week. And that, that fifth day is like protected release time for clinical. Actually, neither of the institutions that I have worked for um, have had that kind of like protected day in that regard. It's mostly based on like this FTE model, which is actually different than a lot of PA programs. If you look at like the statistics, um, about 80% of PA programs are actually structured more in this like clinical release day. It just happens to be that the two that I have worked at um, are more kind of just bundled into this uh, pure FTE model. And so, um, you know, I think 
one thing you have to remember, like for me coming out of emergency medicine, like one thing that kind of was refreshing to me going into academia was realizing like this isn't, you know, shift work. It's flexible. I can work basically anytime, anywhere, kind of what Brian, like what you what you are talking mm. about. You can do stuff anytime, anywhere, even states away. But on the other side of things, uh, I think that what you were getting at, Brandon, is that there's a downside to being able to work anytime, anywhere. Sometimes you end up working additional time, nights, weekends, you know, even when you're away on vacation or something like that, you know, stuff still comes in. And so it makes it really important to have really good boundaries uh, when you're working in academics. Right. Like Brian, for instance, in your case, if you had said, I want to spend 50% of my time teaching now um, and I'll go to 50% clinical so that I'm not just overworking it would probably just mean dropping to part-time or something at your clinical job and and then all things being equal, cutting your pay in half and not having benefits, for instance, right? Right, yeah. Um, and I do. I have friends who teach and work in the same institution like Janelle was talking about, and that's sort of their, what they do, right? There's, they have four days a week, they're academics, and then one day a week they work on a clinical service. Um, but yeah, so the, the upside to doing it the way I'm doing it is you know, as an adjunct at Georgetown, I can teach more or less. I can take a whole semester off if I want and say, Hey, I don't want to teach this semester. Um, but I, and I still have a full-time job. The, the downside to it is yeah, it's two jobs, right? So if I said, I want to teach more and work less clinically, I'm going to lose a lot of the pay and benefits that come along with my clinical job. You'll have no full-time job. Yeah. 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 Right now, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, like I said, I work in a place where I work 14 shifts a month clinically uh, and about half, not half of those, but half of the weeks uh, of the month I'm working weekends. So I have, you know, a fair amount of days free that for right now, at least it's perfectly fine for me to spend teaching, grading, designing stuff, et cetera. Uh, I'm sure at some point I'll decide to choose one or the other and, um, you know, not work quite so much, but for right now, it, it works out really well for me. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly possible that anytime you're trying to combine two jobs, scheduling-wise, it's just not possible. There's something you must do for both at the same time, and that doesn't have to happen all that often <laughs> until it's mm-hmm. like you just right. can't do this thing anymore. So yeah. obviously it helps to have scheduling like we do, which is fewer days per week, doing academic work that's not so much locked in at specific times. Well, and I'm very, very fortunate. Um, I, when I first started teaching in Georgetown, I would only teach evening classes um, because I was like, that way, I, you know, it doesn't matter if I worked. The worst thing that can happen is I have a, had a really horrendous clinical day. I come home, I'm exhausted, and I can't relax. I have to teach. Okay. Um, and then at one point, I was like, it would be nice to teach during the day so I could not have to teach every evening. Um, and you know, when I approached my boss at my clinical job about it, they were super great about it and said, you know, if you tell us there's a consistent day every week that you need off, we'll just make it work. And so right now I have every, every Tuesday, I have no clinical responsibilities any Tuesday. Um, and so I can teach, I can, that's the day I block aside for grading. I just literally lock myself in the office at home and do academic stuff all day on Tuesday. 
I think that's kind of like what I was getting to when I said it's very important to have boundaries because I think with academic work, you can always, there's always more that you can do, especially if you're somebody that is, you know, designing curriculum, um, being able to kind of do that, that creative stuff. There's so much that you can do. And there's, I mean, basically your only limitation is going to be time. And so being able to set boundaries and really protect your time so that you can do both is, is extraordinarily important. Well, and I, I think people who are working clinically are probably used to somewhat clearer expectations for what they should be doing, which is to say, show up at a certain time, go mm-hmm. home at hopefully a certain time, take good care of patients in the meantime, uh, maybe not cost anybody too much money, and that's that. Whereas academically, it sounds like uh, some of the expectations are a little softer. You can, to some extent... Um, pursue things that are make that are important to you or seem like to you like they add value, you know, develop some of your own areas. Obviously serve the program, but it may not be as as clear cut of a list of things that need to be doing. And again, I'm sure a lot of this depends on where you are, but um, is maybe that's something that would appeal to a lot of people and then for others maybe they wouldn't like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think you know, at the end of the day, when when you are a faculty in a PA program and P program, you know, you are likely handed some responsibilities. A lot of time that is, this is the course that you're going to coordinate or the course that you're going to direct, or these are this is the unit that you're going to give all of these lectures in. These are the students that you are going to advise. But anything outside of that, it can be what you want it to be, um, depending on kind of what direction you, you want to take it. And I think it's really important, you know, if you want to find success in medical education is to sort of like find your niche, um, figure out what kind of like differentiated knowledge or skills that you can bring to that role. Because, you know, in, in today's day and age, like, like facts are a dime a dozen, Um, you know, the ability for somebody to stand up there and read off some PowerPoint slides, like that's a dime a dozen. But if you've got differentiated skills or or knowledge, like that is going to set you up for success as an educator, um, but also bring you a lot of like personal fulfillment and professional fulfillment. And so, for example, for me, you know, I really wanted to take something from the emergency department, like point of care ultrasound. And I'm like, I want to like make that my thing in PA education. And I was able to do that. And I felt like it made me a better teacher. Um, I definitely found more success as an educator and as, as a, um, as a PA faculty member with that. And I also got a lot more fulfillment from it. And so I think that that's something that's really important for people that are ready to make that transition from like clinical to more full-time teaching. I think it's something important for them to remember and kind of keep in mind. Well, so let's kind of look at the process. I think for people who are working clinically who have any interest in teaching, they're probably doing some kind of teaching there. But Mm -hmm. if the two steps are first going to a regular part-time position at some academic program, and the next one is becoming full-time, who do you think should take that first step? You know, when does it make sense to carve out dedicated time in your life to teach in addition to whatever other sort of cherry-on-top things you're doing at your clinical job? 
I mean, I don't think there's a one right answer for this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that it's going to be dependent upon that individual's or any individual's goals for for their career, like what you want to get out of it. Because I, I can tell you this much, like medical education, uh, full time, it's not easy. Uh, I think that I see I hear people say, like, I want to get out of clinical work. I'm so burnt out. Like, I want to do this. And it's it's a different kind of hard. So medical education isn't easy, nor is it necessarily glamorous, um, although it, it can seem like that on the outside. But I can tell you that it is like hands down the most fulfilling thing that you can do with your medical education. Um, and so I think that who should move into education? Well, somebody that is at that point of their career where they feel like they want more. They want to be able to do more with this very valuable education and experience that they have had working as a clinician. When you're ready to make that transition, like that's the time. That's the person that should take this next step. And then if that person is thinking about going full-time, which assuming that they're not going to be a double person and they'll probably stop working clinically, I mean, that seems like in many people it would be driven more by wanting to move away from something because they are giving up the clinical work that they primarily trained for and that presumably for most people was originally the reason they got into this work. So if that either that may be a, a sacrifice they're willing to make because of what they're moving towards or that may be part of the reason they're doing it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much personal you want to get into, but I mean, what, what would you say drove that for you? I mean, my like I, I've already said, my first role in academics was still working clinically, and I really did like continuing to work clinically. I actually thought that teaching made me a better clinician um, and that my clinical days did make me a better teacher, um, absolutely, especially during those first five years in, um, in academics. I did when I made this transition to Duke to my second institution where I am uh, now on faculty. Uh, the way that the role was structured, um, I, I was not going to have sp- space for clinical work at, at that point in time, and so that was a difficult decision for me to make for those those same points that I just brought up because I I do think that still having your foot in the door clinically does make you a better teacher, and I, I do think that you you know, for that one shift a week or what have you, uh, that 30% of time that you do show up clinically when you're an educator, I do think that you are better at your your job uh, because because of the, the work that you do on the academic side of things. So, you know, I did have a little bit of an identity crisis when I moved into my current role, when I realized that I would not be working in emergency medicine for the first time in over a decade. Um, it was hard. Do you think if you wanted to go back to it at some point, it may be difficult or increasingly difficult if you haven't worked clinically for however many years? I mean, I'm two years out of working clinically now. I do. That is a fear that I have. It is a worry that I have. Um, and, and I don't know that if I were to go back to work clinically, I don't know if it would necessarily be in emergency medicine. Um, you know, it may be in an area in which I have uh, applicable skills from working in emergency medicine previously. Um, but I think that's what a nice thing about having some lateral mobility as a PA uh, is that we we can take the skills that we've built over time and, and work in different areas. But yes, I do want to go back to clinical work uh, sometime in the near future. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to ask that the same question about how you transition into full-time academics. Because for me, when I was a f- fairly new NP. Um, I was approached by a, a 
mentor of mine and said, you know, we have an opening uh, in the college for an academic position. I think you should apply for it. And I was like, well, that sounds great. I knew I liked to teach. I had taught, you know, um, review courses and stuff for nurses when I was a nurse. I had done my doctoral work in education, like in teaching, um, in the sim lab and stuff. So I knew I liked it. Uh, and, but what turned me off was when she said, it, now it would be a position where you would give up your clinical role and just do like one day a week of clinicals. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to practice. And even now, this is the thing now, even now, when I think about, uh, you know, going full-time academics, I'm like, could I do full-time academics and full-time clinic? Because I don't, I really don't want to give up either of them. Right. Um, I assume at some point in my career that will change, uh, whether it's out of, uh, like you said, you know, I mean, that's sort of what drove me to become an NP in the first place, right? Was I just assumed I'd be an ICU or an ER nurse for my whole career. At some point I was like, well, I want something different and new challenges, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I assume that'll kind of happen as well. Or maybe it'll just be the practical issue of, I sure am tired and I would like more days off. So I got to give up something. Um, but right now, I honestly, I don't know what it would be because I really enjoy both. <laughs> and I was going to ask you because I think the same thing. I think that I'm a better teacher for practicing. And I think I'm a better practitioner for teaching, right? I practice in a fairly niche environment. I practice in a surgical ICU and a neuro ICU. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of do the same things every day. I see the same things. But then when I go to teach and I teach things like, uh, you know, oncologic emergencies, I don't see that stuff in the ICU, right? But now if it ever comes up, I go, hey, I know stuff about that because I have to teach mm -hmm. it, right? So, yeah. So I, I think that's interesting, though, that the what like you were saying. So the course that I have taught consistently um, through through my years of being a faculty member is actually the physical diagnosis uh, course or patient assessment course. And I can tell you that when I first um, started doing like curricular planning for that and really getting into the weeds um, on teaching that course, dang, my physical exam skills in the emergency department, like they shot through the roof. And I was like, you know, teaching my the students that were rotating with me, um, anybody else that would like listen, um, just teaching them and kind of, uh, you know, going over physical skill, physical exam skills. And so I think that was just like one example of a way that it made me a better clinician because I could really rely more on that physical diagnosis because we don't just order CT scans for everything, uh, despite popular belief. Okay. So setting the record straight. Uh, most people who teach in more, more informal ways, like they take students on clinical rotations or you know, they give occasional talks and things, it, that, that skill is kind of uh, self-taught usually. And in many mm -hmm. cases, probably not very well, but it, it's just sort of expected of some people who work in clinical roles um, and they can get into it more or less if they want. But getting into more formal uh, academics, do you guys think it's important to have more formal training in education? either important because it's actually useful or because it's expected by some of these institutions, whether that's a degree in education or some sort of certificate or a pamphlet you read once or whatever it may be. I think this is an interesting question, and this is something that as a medical educator who does not have an additional degree, um, I feel like this is a conversation that I get pulled into a lot. Um, and I think that having additional training in some way, shape, or form is important, 
but that does not necessarily need to be an additional degree. It doesn't need to be an EdD, a PhD, you know, whatever alphabet soup uh, letters that we've got out here for, for doctoral degrees these days. You know, I can share what I did um, when I knew that I wanted to go into uh, academics from clinical work is that I um, ended up enrolling in courses through the Harvard Macy Institute. And so this is an institute in Boston. Um, they have courses that are in-person as well as um, virtual too. And these are basically courses specifically for medical educators. And this was probably one of the most um, important things that I did to be able to prepare me for being a, a medical educator. It helps me learn the lingo. Um, it helped me understand the structure. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of just like intricities that you that you learn about in medical education, like what's a competency? You know, what are, you know, all these different, uh, they love triangles and pyramids in medical education. So you learned all of those things. And I, I think that seeking something like that out that is well-established um, is very helpful. Um, you know, another thing is um, PAEA, which an organization I've mentioned already, they do have a series of workshops for people who are new to their roles in education. Um, and I, I enrolled in one of those workshops uh, within my first semester of, of uh, teaching, and it was a new faculty 101 workshop. It was basically a really intense uh, one-week workshop taught by other PA educators, and we went over a lot of those same things that we learned in the Harvard Macy Institute, but very specific to PA education. Um, and so I think that those type of educational activities are, are very useful for you uh, so that you can do your job and do your job well as a medical educator. And the places you've worked uh, have been happy with that type of preparation. They haven't said, you know, we'd love to have you, but you really need to get a degree. No, no, both, yeah, both of the places that I um, have been on faculty are very supportive of, of those two things and, and um, you know, even do send new faculty members to these at times too. I'm glad that you brought up institutions um, because depending on what institutions somebody may become faculty at, there also is excellent institutional support um, at, at some of these institutions too. So when I was at UNC, um, there was something called the Center for Faculty Excellence. And this was basically a group of educators kind of at the main campus, but then also some people on the medical campus too, that basically they got together like, and they talked about how to like teach better. And we made all, there were all sorts of like resources for people. We have something similar here at Duke called Duke Ahead. Um, and this is more geared towards people that are teaching in the health professions. Um, but it's basically like a group of educators educating one another on how to educate better. Super meta, I know. Right. So there's room for growth even after you get a position, maybe. Brian, what do you what do you think for you guys? Because yeah, so, maybe different for NPs. Yeah. So when I first started teaching, I, I did not know many people who did teach. So I didn't know what the the norm was. I did know that one of the anesthesiologists uh, I worked with in our program, he was the residency program director, I think at the time when I started, um, who I thought was super brilliant and just a super nice guy. Uh, and he had done actually a master's in medical education. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to be like Dr. Shell. I'm going to go, I'm going to figure out how to get a master's in this. And, um, you know, that 
feels like a big task to undertake. But I was fortunate at Georgetown, we have something called the Center for, oh man, I'm going to get this wrong, the Center for Innovation and Leadership in Education, I think is what it's called. Um, and it's a part of the Georgetown University Medical Center. So it's the School of Nursing, the School of Public Health, the School of Medicine, all of those together. Uh, and they offered a postgraduate certificate program for teaching in medical education, uh, free for any faculty that you could just do it. And so I signed up and did it in, uh, I think it was two semesters a year, something like that. Uh, and it was great. We met weekly uh, on Zoom and had discussions of different things ranging from curricular design to uh, how do you teach procedures, which revolutionized the way I teach procedures, not only to students, but to like new NPs that are working with me. Like, you know, how do you know when to take over a procedure and, you know, without hurting someone's feelings, things like that. Um, and so I did that program. That was very helpful. Um, but then I still, I learned stuff from other faculty. So my program direct, former program director, she's now the assistant dean uh, of our program at Georgetown. She actually did her doctoral work in education. Um, and so she has taught me a lot of stuff about like um, test analysis, like how do you take a test when your students take a test and how to analyze to see if it's a fair test and looking at all the statistical data and stuff like that, which is really helpful, I think, for people who are doing things like like that is in teaching. Uh, but yeah, I, th I do think that we do need, you need some sort of training in how to teach, right? Some people I think are just naturally better educators, uh, but there is some art to delivering content in a way that is not, like you said earlier, just reading off a PowerPoint slide. Now, Brian, the you are a DNP. Yes. That's the academic degree you earned in your initial training. Mm -hmm. um, the nurse practitioner world has probably been a little more aggressive at, you know, uh, making doctoral degrees, the degrees they're granting when people are trained. Uh, there are some doctoral PA programs that are not as common. Do you think having a, a doctoral degree was important in your appointment? Um, yes and no. So yes in that um, Georgetown now has a doctoral program. We didn't when I first started. And so in order to teach students in a doctoral program, you have to have a doctorate. Um, and so there's an advantage there. A lot of our faculty did not have doctorates when I first started. They have since mostly gone back to get them if they didn't. Did so they ask them to like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Cause I wasn't obviously one of them, but I think it was one of those things that would be like, sure would be great if you got a doctorate, uh, <laughs> you know, not, not necessarily like you're going to get fired if you don't, but would be swell Leaving out pamphlets um, and sending around emails. Yeah. Hey, we're enrolling. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so in that in that standpoint, yes, I think there was a benefit. Now I know a lot of people who still teach in, in master's programs who only have master's degrees, and no one seems to care. For me personally, when I did my doctorate, I did a bachelor's to doctorate program. So my doctorate was really just some sort of I don't want to downplay it and say generic, but sort of less specific quote, doctoral content on top of the stuff that I would have gotten at a master's program. Uh, so I got a little bit more leadership skills. I got a little more research stuff. Uh, I actually did a research project, like a dissertation. Um, but it was fairly, 
not to sound pejorative again, but fairly generic, right? Whereas I, some of my faculty friends who have gone back to get their doctorate after the fact, they're already practicing NPs. They don't need the nurse practitioner education. They can pick a doctorate that's focused in things like education, and they get courses on test design. They get courses on pedagogy. They get courses on things like that that I did not get. So I don't think my doctorate prepared me any better than a master's would to teach, but it gives me that little credential, that piece of paper that says, uh, yeah, you can teach doctoral students. So, I mean, I think that's an excellent point that you bring up, Brian, is that, you know, for people that are potentially seeking a, a doctorate for whatever reason, but since we're talking about going into, an, into education on this particular episode, um, you know, choosing one that is going to hopefully give you skills that can be transferable, um, to what your future goals are, are going mm-hmm. to be. So even though you say that it was generic, I mean, you, it sounds like you still, you know, got these additional skills in like leadership and, and those types of things, like things that you probably use every day when, you, when you're teaching. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, I mean, I advise a lot of students and they ask like, oh, should I get a doctorate someday? And I'm like, well, I don't have one. Um, but if I were to get one someday, which is in the cards in the future for me, I would be sure that I would choose one that, you know, gave me the additional skills that are going to help me uh, achieve future career goals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I advise doctoral students now as part of my job at Georgetown, um, because again, they, they need people who have doctorates to do this. So, um, you know, I can sit and tell them like, here's the statistical analysis stuff you need to do for your research project that I would not probably have understood had I just got a master's. I can walk them through, you know, here's what your defense is going to look like. Here's how to get published. Here's how to do an IRB stuff. Uh, all that stuff I got definitely because I have a doctorate. And so, I, so yeah, I don't mean to sound like it's generic, like it was worthless. Uh, it was certainly great. You know, the leadership classes I had, I was very fortunate. I got taught by some people who were like, you know, chief nursing officers and chief medical mm-hmm. officers of, of big hospitals who really understood things like finance and things like, you know, all the stuff that invo- is involved with management stuff that I don't do. Uh, and I'm happy to not do. I'm not a management person, but uh, I, you know, I got exposed to all that. Someone decides this is something they want to pursue. How do they get into it? And it sounds like at least some of the time it's because they word of mouth knew someone who like offered them a position, which is all well and good if it happens. If it doesn't, then what? Should people be skimming jobs websites and like applying there? Or is there some more adult process that goes on? I mean, you make it sound like an old boys club here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I heard a job is uh, on on the horizon. No, I mean, the, the, I I would probably recommend if somebody was interested in getting into PA education, um, again, that PAEA, the Education Association for PAs, they do have a job board. And I can tell you that if a PA program is hiring or thinking about hiring or has a job posted, it will go on that job board. Does something, do you know if something similar exists for uh, NP programs, Brian? Yeah, there's a, the National Organization for Nurse Practitioner Faculty, NOMF, uh, which is the really un, unfortunate uh, acronym for it, but they, they're, they're very similar. Um, and uh, I'm not heavily involved with them, so, so I don't know a whole lot, but I know a lot of people who are, uh, but they have, they have similar stuff. So I, I think that if you if you want to know what's out there, um, that would be the place that I would go is to like your 
um, your your organization for PA or NP educators, like go to their their website and, and see their job listings. But I think you know if you're interested in getting into education, getting into academics, I would say like while you're still working clinically start laying the foundation by getting yourself some relevant experience. And so I think that the first thing that anybody that is considering teaching should do is they should become a preceptor. Like people should be able to teach at the bedside if they want to be able to transfer those skills and be able to teach in a different um, aspect. And so I think that precepting should be the first stepping stone for anybody that wants to go into um, medical education at all. You know, there's other things that you can do also while you're working clinically to kind of build up those skills that you would need as an educator. So even getting involved with like like research, like if there's like a quality improvement project or something like that, that is happening in in your department or in your, your clinical unit or something, like getting involved with that. I think also sharing any valuable experience and knowledge that you have as a clinician um, in ways that are kind of recognized or transferable to academia um, is also extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable. And so that may be like giving conference presentations. And so you can actually get that experience of standing up in front of a group and, and teaching something that you know. Uh, it also can be like writing um, like a case report or like getting a clinical review article published. That's again, something that would be recognized in academia under like scholarship that would kind of get your name out there, but also help you gain those those skills. And then of course, like getting involved with any local uh, PA or NP programs um, so that again, they know who you are, they know that you're interested. We always need people to help with lectures, facilitating small groups, et cetera. And then I think the last piece, like if you are interested in pursuing a career in academia, I would say like, teach wherever you can and whenever you can. One of the first things that I actually formally taught was ACLS classes. I became an ACLS instructor and it sounds kind of boring because they just like kind of give you all the stuff that you need to teach. Um, but man, I could run a really, really good mega code and make stuff like really stick for people. And, and I think like that was just because I knew that this was something that I wanted to do. And I told myself, like, if this is what I really, truly want to do, I need to try to teach whenever I can and wherever I can. So those are a few of my kind of pearls that I give to people when they tell me that they're considering making this transition. Yeah, I would second all of that. Um, there's always a need for preceptors. We are constantly looking for people, preceptors, especially if you live, like some people may be listening to this and say, I don't live in an area where there's a big academic center that I could get a teaching job. That's some of the best places to precept because, you know, Georgetown and other schools like it. I know we have students who are all over the country who do remote. And some of those places, we have a hard time placing students. They have to drive for, you know, a hundred miles or more to get to a clinical site. So, that's a great way to get started for NPs. I don't know about PAs cause I just don't know about how you guys are educated, but for NPs there is in every program I've ever been associated with, like the ones I went to teach at no people to teach at. There is a clinical instructor, clinical advisor, clinical person of whatever role. That's usually like an adjunct position. Sometimes full-time faculty will do it on the side as part of their, their FTE. But who basically you get a group of students and kind of oversee them. 
And so like I have six students right now around the country and they submit work to me every week that I review. I check in with them to make sure things are going okay. I talk to their preceptors, things like that. It's a lot of um, administrative task, but it's a pretty low bar for entry. You know, you can just say, hey, uh, do you need somebody to run some clinical stuff for you guys? And programs are usually like, yeah, that would be great. You know, how many students do you want? Um, and so it's a good mm-hmm. way to kind of start interacting with students, start seeing behind the curtain of how academics works things like that, without having to get up and give a lecture or take on a whole class. Um, and then also guest lecturing, particularly if you have niche expertise, right? I usually do a couple of times a year some neurocritical care or neuroemergency talks for a couple of different NP programs around the country where I have friends who are on faculty. They'll you know call me up and be like, hey, can you, you know, on this day, can you come Zoom into my class and talk about neuroemergencies? Because we don't have anybody who does that. So it'd be great to get some expert opinion. Yeah. I, I mean, if you really are applying for a position, you know, someone you don't know on a, a listing or something, it, it seems like it would make sense to have some kind of applicable experience, particularly if you don't have prior formal training mm-hmm. in education. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to see that th- there's some reason to think that you can teach and function right. in an educational environment, which are not necessarily the same skill. But I, I think that also a part of this is not just like proving to the people that you are applying to, but also like proving to yourself that this is something that you want to do. Um, because the attrition rate of faculty in, in medical education is not negligible. Um, so I think it's very, very important to know that this is something that you want to do uh, before you actually um, make that transition. If you're switching from a clinical work to teaching, especially if it's full time, should people expect to see a change in how much money they're making? I mean, I make less money uh, working as a faculty member uh, than I did working in emergency medicine. Um, That's probably the norm, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But I think, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but, you know, for me, that flexibility and fulfillment that I have really just makes up for for that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think before you do this, you need to make sure that this is what you really want to do, right? And I see this with people who go to NP school too. Nurses are sort of like, I'm tired of working at the bedside. I'm bored. I'm, you know, they don't like working the hours. I don't like dealing with the physical demands of being a nurse. So I'm going to go to NP school. And then they turns out that they hate it. Um, and they basically did it because they thought, it's more money. It's better hours. It's not as physical. Uh, but then they go, oh, but this is nothing what I want to do with my life. And I think people do the same thing with academics. They're like, I'm burnt out with night shift and weekends and holidays. And so I want to get into something. What can I do? Academics, that sounds great. Let's do that. And then they go, well, I'm out. Now I make less money and I hate my job. So yeah, make sure that this is really what you want to do. Yeah, there used to be a saying in... Um the self-defense community that if you're in danger, your goal really is not just to run away from it. It's to run towards safety because otherwise there's no particular reason to think that the way you're running is going to be any better than where you came from. Uh, So if you're not satisfied or you're burned out in your current job, it makes sense to consider a change, but this is a good time to make sure that what you're changing into is going to be better for you, particularly because there are, opportunity costs and barriers to making those transitions. You may be even less likely to change after you've done it if you decide that you hate that as well. And then, right, a cherry on top, not that money is 
the biggest driver for satisfaction for us. But it's definitely something you're always going to be aware of. And if you don't really like it and you're not making very much money, right? Um, it, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, we've certainly all probably seen people who are teaching who, who seem burned out and not very happy with it as we've seen clinically. Um, but I guess you, you see people working clinically talking about leaving that, whereas you don't, maybe you don't see so much of the other, although in both cases, maybe it makes sense for, for certain people. But I think it, it definitely makes a lot of sense to test the waters and, and see if it's something that you're, that you're passionate about and enjoy, not just something that is different from what you're currently doing. Right. Or, I, or the next logical step. Is, Ooh, yeah, 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 whatever, is, you know, whatever that yeah. means, yeah. Yeah, that's a super good point. Because, and again, there are lots of ways to teach in the context of clinical work for most people. There are non-traditional ways of teaching, like what we're doing right now. You, mm-hmm. If that's the itch you want to scratch, there are plenty of ways to do it without necessarily uh, giving up anything clinically or um, kind of adopting the that lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> moving into it where that's right. what you're mainly doing and you're doing all of those things we're talking about, like um, the academics in the background and things like that. So if you don't think that's for you, and if things like taking a pay cut don't seem up your alley, then there are potentially ways to do all of this. Um, again, compared to showing up at 7 a.m. and leaving at 7 p.m. and writing notes, it's probably all a little more complicated or flexible or requires kind of more building your own path as you walk it. Um, but the opportunities may be there. Do you have any thoughts on choosing an institution that you might want to hold a position with? And certainly for many people who are looking locally, there may not be that many, but there's often more than one. And if you're considering a, a remote position like Brian has, then um, potentially anywhere may be on the table. Uh, but there's different types of places to work for and potentially different positions you might hold at them. And for someone who hasn't really lived an academic life, they may not have any idea what the difference is or you know what how it should matter. I think that sometimes people are going to be more bound by geography, um, like what's available kind of in in their market in which they are living. But now that we, I mean, I feel like one of the great things that happened from the pandemic is that people can work from anywhere, Um, you know, kind of like what Brian, I mean, Brian, it sounds like you hop on an airplane and actually fly all all the way up there to do do your work. But, you know, you still, you you can teach remotely um, as well, too. So I think that that does kind of open up more opportunities for different institutions for people to work at, because it used to be just like, oh, there's a local PA program. Um, it's either I work at this one or none, not at all, mm-hmm. uh, unless I want to like uproot my entire family and move someplace else. Um, but I think like if you have the opportunity to think about two different institutions or a number of different institutions, I think it's important to understand like, you know, is it a public institution? Is it a private institution? Like there are different um, pros and cons of working at either of those as somebody who has worked at both a large public and a large private institution. Um, I think also when you're looking at the particular program, like looking at that program's structure, do they teach what we call more traditional, quote unquote, traditional education, where you've got lectures and labs, um, kind of like a preclinical and a clinical year, or is it something that's more like problem-based learning, where it's totally case-based learning, um, and, and teaching in that is a lot more facilitation, um, 
than than kind of like more lecture preparation. So kind of understanding the structure of that program. Also, like what are the the mission and the goals of that program? So for PA education, we're very pretty strictly or tightly bound by like our accrediting body. So like PA programs have to teach, you know, it's a huge document of like things that we must teach. Like it's pretty standardized what we must teach. But PA programs kind of within their mission and goals um, of their program, they can kind of say that we have more of a, um, you, you know, a, a flavor of like preparing people for primary care or surgical subspecialties, or we really have a focus on um, like Jedi top topics. Um, so I think that making sure that those things kind of match up with what your own um, interests, expertise, um, and, and goals are with your career. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, I don't, again, I don't know the PA world as well, but like for NPs, there are a lot of programs out there um, that I would not want to be a part of, right? Because I feel like we have, as a profession, we crank out too many people who are not well prepared. Um, and so, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that I feel like our graduates do very well, that they're very well prepared. Um, people ask, ask me all the time, why don't I teach in the program at Kentucky? since I live here and work here. Uh, and the answer is there's, it's nothing against Kentucky. I love the fa- the folks there. And most of the people that I, that were there when I was a student have, have moved on, but I know it, most of their faculty from working with them clinically, they're all fa- fabulous. Uh, for me, it was a, it was a logistics thing at the time when I was ready to get into teaching, there was not a position available at Kentucky that didn't require me to give up my clinical practice, uh, at least mostly. Um, whereas I could sort of dip my toes in the water at Georgetown. And then it's just from there has become, you know, more and more opportunities have popped up for me at Georgetown to advance there. Um, you know, so it's not a slight on either program. They're both great. And I would think like we were talking about, there may be a consideration of, um, are you going to teach at the same place where you work clinically, which may have Mm -hmm. some benefits as far as flexibility. Um, and then not even getting into, what are probably more niche situations like teaching outside of your own specialty. So a PA, could you teach at, a, at an NP program or a non-advanced practice program um, or a medical school? I mean, these are things that are definitely not the most common situation, but not necessarily are off the table. So Again, a lot of it may just depend on what kind of space you can carve out for yourself. All right, we can probably wrap it up there. Um, I'm so glad we got to chat about this. It's obviously a not clinical, um, but I think is relevant to some, not everyone, but some people. Maybe not as relevant to everyone who thinks it is. Maybe some people are contemplating this and it's not something that should be part of their future. And maybe for some people it, it should be when they haven't thought about it. So just a little bit of a, a flavor of the considerations. Um, we'd love to hear from any of you guys if you have your own experiences or thoughts or questions about it. Uh, I'm glad you could join us for a little bit, Janelle. Maybe we'll have you back sometime. I would love to be back. <laughs> and we'll talk to the rest of you guys next time. <laughs>